This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me in the garage, as always, my friend, who I have to say is like the Paul Simon of the show, (laughs) still crazy after all these years. He is the captain. Well, you are my Garfunkel, sir. Good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Today, Captain, we are drinking green by Treehouse Brewing Company. Garage grade, four and a half bottle caps out of five. This is truly a cross-continental IPA made with Australian and American hops. This citrus heavy IPA opens up the glass with notes of pineapple, tangerine, and Mm -hmm. orange rind. Fooled on, man. And it's sharply bitter, and it's also about 8% ABV, so check that out. Green is brought to us by some of our very good garage friends. We have Rebecca in Victoria, Australia. Also, there's Crystal in Alberta, Canada. Next up, we have Dugan in Baldwin, Missouri, Mm -hmm. who says he wants to give a big shout-out, a big PBR shout-out. Yeah, yeah. Let's head further west and say hi to Kathy in Oceanside, California. Also, a big mental high-five to Christine. Christine says she knows everybody loves the captain, but Nick is her favorite. Of course. She also says, some true crime podcasts leave you wondering Mm -hmm. if there are any good people left in the world, and True Crime Garage shows that there are at least two. I don't know who she's talking about. She must know two two people that we don't know. She must know some good people. And last but not least, we have Kristen and her sister Leslie, who listen to True Crime Garage while they are commuting. So, a big thank you to Rebecca, Crystal, Dugood, Kathy, Christine, Kristen, and Leslie, thank you guys for buying us around for this week's show. And if you want to chip in and buy us around for next week's show, go to truecrimegarage.com and click on the donate button. I never get tired of hearing people talk about listening to the show while they commute to work or listening why they're getting paid at work. 
So for all you people out there that are listening at work or on your commute or doing dishes or whatever the heck you're doing, we like your gym. All right, Captain, season three coming toward an end here. But we wanted to go the extra mile for you guys because we know you're out there. You're working hard. You're doing your thing. It's the busiest time of year, right? The holidays are upon us. And we wanted to show our dedication to you. We're in the garage. We locked ourselves in here for the whole damn week. Thank God there's been beer showing up. (laughs) Beer keeps us piling in. It's fueling the fire. Well, yeah, you guys support us. And this is our way of supporting you guys. We appreciate it. And that's enough of the business. All right, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer, and let's talk some true crime. Seattle this morning, police are hunting a mass murderer believed to have killed as many as 21 prostitutes in the last 22 months. David Burrington reports. Been called the Green River Killer ever since the first bodies, five of them, were pulled from this river. Since then, seven more bodies have been discovered nearby, all those of young prostitutes, according to police. And the number of missing increases steadily. Two were added to the list this week. All the victims worked this strip near the Seattle airport, crammed with hotels, motels, and strip joints. Angry residents are demanding police do more to stop the killings. One young prostitute who operates along the strip said she's terrified every time she's picked up. I don't know, I'm just, I guess I'm just lucky that I never came across that certain freak. (laughs) Police say the victims are similar, runaways, very young, disturbed. Most were strangled, their bodies left nude. A police task force has little hard evidence, but it thinks a single psychopathic killer is responsible. However, it would be illogical and improper from an investigative perspective to become that tunnel vision and exclude the possibility of any copycat crimes or the possibility of a multiple suspect. Police suspect other prostitutes might be able to provide leads, but because of their profession, they've been uncooperative. David Burrington, NBC News, Seattle. Police in Washington state believe they found the remains of another victim of the so-called Green River Killer. The victim, identified Monday as 17-year-old Cindy Ann Smith, was last seen in March of 1984. Police believe that Smith is the killer's 37th known victim, all of them women ranging from 16 to 36 years of age. The murders began in summer of 1982, and since then, an army of detectives and a multi-million dollar computer system have been unable to crack the case. In this country, in Washington state, still another victim has been identified in the nation's longest list of unsolved murders, the Green River Killings. 37 women have died, nine missing, all thought to be victims of the same killer. John Sandifer of KING-TV in Seattle has the latest. 
It was a familiar routine for the Green River Task Force, sifting through any remaining evidence at a site where someone, in this case three young boys, had stumbled across human remains. After the passage of three years, they would not find much more than a skeleton. Late Monday, the remains would be identified as those of 17-year-old Cindy Ann Smith, last seen in March 1984, hitchhiking from her mother's home to that of her sister in Seattle. She is victim number 37. Cindy disappeared from a strip of highway south of Seattle, where no fewer than 18 other young women, mostly prostitutes, dropped out of sight beginning in the summer of 1982. The first grisly discoveries of their bodies was along the picturesque Green River, hence the name that has come to represent untold horror to many in the Northwest. The Green River murders have included victims ranging in age from 16 through 36. Most of their bodies have been recovered in wilderness dumping grounds in groups of two, three, and up to seven. The Green River Task Force has employed up to 50 full-time detectives and a multi-million dollar computer system to crack the case. They have served at least two search warrants, but as of this morning, the killer remains unidentified. And Cindy Smith's disappearance was the last one in this area three years ago. John Sandifer for NBC News in Seattle. In Seattle. In Seattle. It's the early 80s, and Ted Bundy is safe, let's say safe, behind bars, right? He was convicted of killing the girls at the Chi Omega sorority house. Mm -hmm. Not only was he seen in the area prior to the crimes, but he was also seen fleeing the Chi Omega sorority house with the uh, weapon that he used to attack the women. Um, yeah, the oak log. And then he goes on to represent himself in trial for these murders and he thinks things are going his way, but everybody else has a better perception of what's actually <laughs> yeah. taking place. Well, everybody else is not a sociopath and a psychopath. And not only do we have the eyewitnesses that see him fleeing, but uh, one thing that's presented in court is he had bit one of the girls while he was in the sorority house. One of the mm -hmm. young women that he attacked, he bit her and they were able to use the his dental records to show that it was he, in fact, who had caused that wound. You mean Theodore Bundy? Yeah. <laughs> Not him, but Theodore mm -hmm. Bundy. Yeah. So let's say he's safe behind bars, and he's on death row <laughs> wait, in wait. Florida. But Bundy's never safe behind <laughs> bars because this, like, this guy is a slippery cat, right? Yeah, he escaped twice uh, prior to this, and thank God he never escaped again and finally they must have taken him seriously and saw him for exactly what he is and what mm -hmm. we described him as the devil in disguise and he is behind bars on death row in florida well in early uh in the early 80s this would be july 15th 1982 there mm -hmm. is a body that is found floating in the green river this is near uh seattle washington and this is where bundy is from yeah he started his murders in the state of washington and very close to this site as well. Now, this body is spotted um, by a civilian, and it's underneath a bridge, but it's a river. You know, this is moving water, so you mm -hmm. wouldn't always expect uh, to see something just floating there. You would think the water would carry it. However, this body was snagged on growth, uh, you know, things that were growing in the river at the time. Mm -hmm. 
And this would end up being Wendy Lee Caulfield. Um, and she disappeared July 7th, 1982. So she disappeared just eight days before her body is found. Now, in a very short time, they would end up finding five bodies in the same river. And again, this is the Green River. And this is how this unknown serial killer gets his name, the Green River Killer. Now, this killer would have to be killing with such frequency, with, with, with an, an exceedingly quick frequency, because shortly after they find the body of Wendy Colefield, they find the, these other four bodies. Well, in one situation, they find two bodies uh, in the water. And then in another situation, there's a body that is spotted and the police go down to investigate to pull the body from the river and try to figure out what's going on. Well, in the course of pulling that body from the river, one of the officers, uh, and this is uh, Lieutenant Reichert, he he actually practically steps on another body as oh, he's going to, Jesus. as they're working to get this other body out. So mm-hmm. as said, they pull five bodies uh, within a short time period in the 1982s, back uh, out of the Green River. Well, and at this point, they're probably thinking, you know, just because of the proximity that these are all connected, so now we have a bigger problem. We have a serial killer on our hands. Yeah, these these are all women that were either sex workers or or thought to be runaways. Mm -hmm. Uh, So people that might have been living a higher-risk style lifestyle. Um, Yeah, but you hear in the trailer, I mean... Even back then, um, they viewed the sex workers as a, almost this low, lower level human. I mean, they were they said some degrading stuff just in the news broadcast. Yeah, and I think at in that area of the country, you know, there are a lot of sex workers. Well, there were back then. I don't know currently what's going on, uh, but this was it was something you know when they found a dead woman somewhere whether it be on the side of the road or in in the river or near the woods or in the woods there were so many sex workers that they almost kind of just have assumed immediately that this is another you know another sex worker that's been killed now shortly after this the killings would not stop with these five but what would take place is they stopped finding bodies in the river and started finding them near the river in wooded areas right October 1st, 1984, there is a man on death row, that is Theodore Bundy that we talked about, in Florida, and he writes a letter to what is now the Green River Task Force. Um, and let's keep in mind, one of one of the people that were involved in Ted's case that was hunting Ted Bundy and couldn't get to him fast enough right. was Robert Keppel. And now he would... I think I may have misspoken one of our earlier Ted episodes and said that he was an FBI agent, but he, in fact, he was a, a detective for King County and he would go on to work for the attorney general's office in, uh, in the state of Washington. Mm-hmm. So naturally this would bring him after Ted's locked up and, and put away in Florida. This, this puts Robert Keppel in a situation where he's assisting in the green river uh, case and he's a part of that task force. Now there were a lot of people involved in this case and a lot of detectives. This this almost mirrors Bundy's investigation. Remember we talked about all these officers, yeah, and, the Ted murders, yeah, working together and they're they're taking in all these tips and all these clues and then they had to figure out a way to categorize everything so that they could efficiently go through the information and try to link things together. Well, this is similar where. 
when they found one body, you might have one detective on the case. And then there's two more bodies. Well, we've got to pull in some more detectives. And after you find body after body after body, then you, you have this whole group uh, assisting in it. And, and, you know, largely this is the green river task force. Yeah. And well, well, and the fact that with the Ted murders, you know, especially when there's a murder taking place in one area of the country, and then there's a murder taking place in another area of the country, you have now multiple task force, not just detectives. Yeah. And so he, he writes this letter, Theodore Bundy writes this letter to the green river task force. And he's basically saying, you know what? I'm from that area. Mm-hmm. And you know who I am, and maybe I can offer some <laughs> some insight. Sorry to laugh. Well, I, I only say that because I don't know what at the time what he is willing to say of him and his crimes. Mm-hmm. But clearly they know who he is and things he's been capable of. And he knows that they've hunted him for so long. And he's saying, you know, maybe I can offer some insight to help you find this person. And maybe at this point, you know, you know, Ted denied his involvement. Then he defends himself, and now he's in jail. He's on death row. Maybe at this point he is just coming to the terms that this is who I am. This is what I've done. I might as well just accept it. Yeah. I, I, see, I go back and forth with where I think Ted's head was at at this time. Because remember we said there was that rumor that he had spoken to his attorney and asked about you know what state would they put most likely put you to death. Right. And they, the attorney said Florida, and then Ted ends up in Florida and, and commits murder. Crimes, yeah. Uh, and, and and also crimes that he wasn't that careful about. Mm-hmm. All the other stuff, it seemed like he was. Uh, these this seemed like a, a murderous rampage. Yeah, the Cuyahoga or Cuyamega uh, killings. It seemed like just a crazy rampage, and that set it. He set himself up to you know for people to be able to find weapon uh, the 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 murder weapon, and for them to have eyewitnesses. So it really did seem like I'm just committing this crime so then this state can put me to death. Yeah, possibly. I mean, that that's the thought is if he did in fact go there with that intention, then he was a man that had a death wish. Um, I personally think that beforehand, you know, he was he was kind of dabbling in killing. He was killing one at a time. And then mm-hmm. this was uh, like an addict that that ends up binge killing right, right. Uh, once he gets to Florida. Uh, he offers his assistance and he went in the beginning, you know, they're especially Keppel. He's a little, he's a little concerned about talking to Ted. They definitely, all the investigators do want to talk to him. However, they know how, how manipulating and what a liar in, in con man. Yeah. Yeah. That Ted Bundy is. So their first thought is, you know what? He's just going to try to play us one more time. He just wants us to go all the way to Florida. I mean, you couldn't get any more further in the United States almost when you talk about Washington State all the way down to Florida. He just wants us to stop what we're doing, go all the way down to Florida and talk to him. And he's just going to BS us and give us the runaround for, you know, days and days and days. Mm -hmm. And however, there's this thought that, you know what, even if he does try to play us, Maybe we could go down there, and even if we don't learn anything about the Green River Killer, maybe we can learn some things about Ted Bundy. Because mm-hmm. now keep in mind, there are still, to this day, there are bodies of Bundys that have never been found. Mm-hmm. And so they thought, you know, very least case scenario, worst case scenario, we go down there, and maybe we can recover some of these victims of Ted Bundy. Yeah, on record, it seems like he confessed to about 30 
some sites, some uh, sources will say 35 is roughly the Ted Bundy murder count. But, you know, you know, we're not at the point where, but he's, he was confessing all the way up to his death sentence. And was that, was some of those bullshit, who knows, but he, he was constantly confessing. I mean, his kill count could be in the forties, fifties, mm-hmm. who knows? Well, and the, the thing that makes me wonder about the death wish is I always thought that this was a way for Ted Bundy to delay his death sentence. That, okay, now he's on death row mm-hmm. and he, you know, the, the end date is coming. It's, it's approaching. And I ma- could only imagine how fast that seems to approach for somebody that can you imagine knowing the day and time that you're going to die? Mm-hmm. That'd and be awful. So, well, and he deserves Which, every right, minute. Right, of right. It. Definitely. <laughs> he definitely deserves every minute of it, but it's a strange situation to try to try to put yourself in that mindset. So he's down there and now you know what how can he delay his death sentence right so well, is he just talking to this task force you know in order to delay the net then inevitable yeah and i mean he could say you know i can i can help you with this case uh i can also assist you with finding some of the bodies that that i'm in charge of that were you know things that i have done now um but but ted ever being the con man you know he's going to when you start talking to him about bodies and stuff like that, he's he's never really willing to fully divulge everything that he knows. Mm-hmm. He's always got to keep something to himself. You know, one of his confessions states, now we got to keep in mind here, when he's on death row in Florida, mm-hmm. and to this date, you know, even before he was executed, he was never convicted of every single one of his crimes. Right. Um, so one thing he would do, there's there's one confession he gave, which I always found interesting was he would say, you know, in Washington, I killed 11 women and young girls, right? Mm -hmm. I killed 11 girls and young women. Uh, Here's eight of their names. You know, that's the kind of confessions Ted Bundy would give. He's never going to give you everything. He's going to hold on to something. Um, And the other thing too is, well, then the question also becomes, did he even know all the victims names? Well, and the other thing he would do is, you know, I, oh, I can help lead you to these bodies, but mm. you know, I was driving a lot back then. I committed these crimes in multiple States. You know, you're going to have to give me something. You're going to have to provide me with some maps and I'm going to need some information from you. And maybe mm. you could show me some of the case file and I could, I, that might help, uh, jog my memory. So I can, I can tell you where this body would be located and help you find it. And maybe he was also using this. You know, even if he wasn't involved in the case, I mean, you know, he, he had this love of reading the detective books and stuff like that. Maybe some of this was just a way to have resources. You're in this cell mm-hmm. and you're for entertainment. Hey, I, I keep talking to these police and they keep writing me and they keep visiting me and they keep calling me and it's something to do. Well, and one thing that he did when he was younger, you know, before the, well, probably when these crimes first started for Ted back in Washington was he, you know, we talked about him working on the crisis hotline, you know, people could call in that were suicidal or, or having, you know, a crisis. Um, but he also worked on some form of, uh, uh, it wasn't like a task force, but he did like paperwork for, uh, rapes and sexual assaults and things like that. So he was kind of studying, these yeah. these attacks as he was out committing them. Well, he, and he might get some kind of sexual gratification or 
sexual stimulants. Oh, he definitely from, did from reading this yeah. stuff. Yeah, he he had all kinds of motives for wanting to quote unquote help the police. He he definitely had all kinds of weird Ted Bundy motives for why why he was doing this. I mean, like I said before, and I, and I'll say it again. I mean, not a not. I never found him that interesting, and then we started diving into him, and he is complete. He's a complete monster, and he's super fascinating, you know. And that's not to try to glorify him because I think he's scum of the earth. But I mean, this guy had some layers. Well, they went down there with the expectation that maybe we'll talk. You know, we'll go down there, we'll talk with him once, or maybe over the course of a day or two, Mm -hmm. and just see what's going on. And then if if it is what we think it is, where Ted's trying to play us and just you know mess with our minds, then we're just going to get out of there and ignore it. However, we have a duty to do, and if, if there is somebody that knows, this person definitely knows more about murder than the investigators that are investigating murder. Right. So we, we would be doing a disservice to our investigation and to the people of this community if we don't talk to him. And furthermore, as said, Ted was from the area. He knew the area. This was a guy that was constantly driving, and he was putting bodies in the woods as well. And that's what happened with the Green River Killer. He started off putting the bodies in the water, and then he started putting them in the wooded areas near the yeah. river. Well, let's get into that right after a quick beer break. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number 
along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors Fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. You'll step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. Use your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. And customize your very own luxurious estate island. Think expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. Collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. And you can chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. All right. Cheers, everybody. Back into the garage. Cheers. 
the investigators that are researching the Green River Killer and trying to apprehend this man, uh, they are down in Florida and they're going to be talking with Theodore Bundy, somebody that knows murder better than most. Um, and <laughs> and they want to, well, here's they're going to sit down and they want to approach him and explain to him that we are only here to talk to you to see if you can help with this investigation. We're not going to put up with any of your shenanigans. We're not going to play any of your games. Mm-hmm. We don't want to hear a whole lot of Bundy talk. We are here to see how you can help us apprehend this guy. Yeah. And they, they almost come off a little like they, they give him the impression of we don't really believe you can help us. Like, what can you right, offer right. us? Which which I think is smart. I think that's how you challenge somebody like a Ted Bundy, you know, because Ted likes to show his bravado and he likes to show how in- intelligent he is and how smart he is. And so to challenge him almost makes him well he's a narcissist well it corrals him a bit right it corrals him a bit and it and it makes him uh he's going to have to talk about the things that you want he's going to have to hold your interest or you're Mm -hmm. going to leave you have you have no reason to talk to him other than this investigation um they they would talk for hours and hours and hours and we're not going to talk for hours and hours and hours so i will sum up some of the yes we are that's what we do (laughs) that's that's our job well I'm going to sum up for you uh, okay. some of the some of the bits of information that Theodore Bundy offers to the Green River Task Force. Mm-hmm. Now, the first thing that they he says to them. Now, keep in mind the the River Man. We have to talk about the River Man, right? Because that's what right. Bundy starts to call the Green River Killer. He refers to him as the River Man. Right. And the investigators talking to Bundy, they will they will adopt this nickname and refer to him as the River Man. Just on a fan of nicknames, you know. So Bundy says that that the River Man, mm-hmm. his first MO was that he would get these girls, and again, most of them are sex workers or presumed runaways. And he would get these girls, pick them up on the strip somewhere, and then he would take them we don't know where, and he would kill them and they would end up in the river. Well, after the first five, we start to see him. He's changed what he's adapted a little bit. He's now putting the bodies in the woods and near the river. And they were having a hard time finding these bodies, but when they would come across one, they would usually come across a second or a third as well. So he's dumping them in what, what Bundy would refer to as clusters. Now Bundy, it's been speculated that Bundy probably did the same thing uh, when he would when he would un- unload a body or two that they would end up in these cluster dumps. Yeah, and if you if you're watching the killing season, they talk about this with the Gilgo Beach murders. Mm-hmm. And one thing that Bundy says is that you you may want to uh, know that he is probably the Riverman is probably returning and visiting these victims after death. Right, and he's. And he wouldn't say why, but he's saying that they probably would visit them and spend some time with the body. Well, what we know about Bundy is he would, and this is going to be graphic, but he would have sex with the victims after they're dead. Uh, He was also known to sometimes put makeup on them. Um, So that's where Bundy's coming from on this idea. Again, if you know, I don't mean to bring up the killing season again, but some people use it as like a trophy room. Here's my cluster of bodies. So when I come back to visit, I don't have to, you know, go a mile here and a mile there to see two different victims. I put them close enough to each other. So when I go, 
I can go look at my trophies. Mm-hmm. Well, the the other thing too is that the killer can return to the dump site not only to have sex with the corpse, but to also kind of see what's going on. Has the is the body gone? Is has it been moved? Has there mm-hmm. been any activity in this area since the last time I've been here? And so it's kind of a way of checking on what's going on as well as doing these other activities. Now, at the time, this really was some helpful insight to the investigators because this is not something that they considered with the Green River Killer. And it also taught them something about Bundy at the same time. That's when they started figuring out Bundy was returning to his victims and he Mm. was spending time, what he called spending time with the bodies. And one thing to, to kind of underline what the captain was saying that we know about Ted Bundy was one of the sisters of, of his victims, a sister of one of his victims, identified the body and noticed that there was makeup and finger paint on mm-hmm. on the girl's the nails. Nail and polish. On, yeah, yeah, nail polish, sorry. And <laughs> finger paint. Well, actually, the book I was refe- re- reading referred to it as finger paint. They call it finger paint? Really? Yeah. Uh, well, these were written by, by police officers. Yeah, that <laughs> written by a man. <laughs> He's like, hey, honey, are you over there finger painting yourself? But there was there was lipstick and there was right. makeup and there was fingernail polish that did not belong to the victim. And even though her belongings disappeared with her, mm-hmm. it you know he didn't use the, the he used some other you know fingernail polish, some other makeup that wasn't her. So we know that he was doing these things. Another method of detection that Ted Bundy was offering to the police was he was saying that this person, this killer is obsessed with sex and violence. Mm -hmm. And so if you are desperate, you know, if you are in fact as desperate as you are telling me you are in this investigation, you may want to set up some kind of surveillance operation outside of, of, uh, pornography theaters or, um, theaters that are showing these, these horrible, uh, horror flicks, you know, where there's a slasher film. Because back in the day, you would actually have to go to a theater in most cases to watch this kind of material. Yeah, they had the triple X theaters that you could go to. And again, but we know with these type of killers that they have this this mental uh, proclivity about them that where they have it's sex and violence and it's violence and sex and it's all wrapped up in one. It's all in one big convoluted mess for them. Mm -hmm. Some of them cannot cannot get it up without the violence in the sex. Some of them cannot, they, they cannot achieve whatever they're looking for. They can't be gratified without the sex and the violence all mm-hmm. mixed up into one. And this, I don't think that this was so helpful as much as the returning to the bodies. Yeah, but it gives you, right. well, well you got the returning to the bodies, but it, you, it gives you a, a, a place to start looking. Uh, the th- the officers and Ted Bundy are not always going to agree on everything. And actually, one of the arguments they got into was the Green River Task Force. They they reached a point in the investigation where they thought that the killings had stopped because they were finding bodies with such frequency. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, they're not finding bodies. And they wanted to know, you know, Ted Bundy, why would this guy stop? Why would he stop killing? We're mm-hmm. not finding anybody. And Ted says, you know, he's not stopped killing. And they said, yeah, we know that he has. We haven't found any new bodies. No, they've not stopped. He's not stopped killing. Ted insisted that what had actually happened is that the killer had adapted and that either he was dumping them in places where you just couldn't find the bodies or he slightly changed his victimology 
where he's no longer focusing on sex workers. Maybe he's yeah. gone after a younger victim or now he's only going after delinquents or people that are, you know, young runaways. Well, um, we also see with serial killers also they, they get invested in their own life, family life or personal matters, work. Sometimes they get involved in different things. And that, that that's also a reason why sometimes there's breaks in the killings. And Later on, we would learn that two of those statements were, in fact, true, uh, that uh, the Green River Killer did, in fact, start seeking out younger victims for a period of time. The other thing, this is this is where the police thought they were going to get their big break, and I really think that they would have. However, there's, there's outside factors that can screw things up in an investigation. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, remember, Bundy gave him the tidbit of the— the killer's probably returning to the crime scene and he's probably returning to the crime scene and, and spending time with the bodies. Yeah. Which is sick. So Ted says, if you really want to catch this guy, this is what I would do. The next time you find a body, do not announce it to anybody. Do not tell anybody that you found a body. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, don't even remove the body. Don't move it at all. Because if you, if you move it at all, he will know. What you should do is is leave the body alone and you should stake out the area and wait for him to return. Now this might take this might take days. It could might, you know it could take months, yeah. And he and he may not be coming back there just to spend time with that body. It could take months. He could be coming back to put another body there. Right. It could be the start of a cluster, yeah. Well, the police are going to use this tactic and I really think this would have worked. However, there was there's an outside factor involved in this investigation. And as with most investigations, especially one of this size, mm-hmm. it's the media. Well, what had happened was they had found a body and they had every intention of just staking out the area and waiting for the killer to return. However, once they started their stakeout and surveilling the area, media somehow got a hold of it. I don't think that they knew in fact that there was a body there, but they saw police activity out in these areas that were, were compatible with what the green river killer was doing. Right. And they basically, the the police are trying to surveil the area and the media is trying to figure, surveil no. them. Yeah. They're trying to figure out why the cops are there. So unfortunately this is going to shut down that operation. They're not going to be mm-hmm. able to sit there and watch this body and watch this area as they're being watched by the media. And you know how the media are. If, if there's one person from the media that starts watching you, well then they, you know, it's, they're like vultures. They, you start seeing the second and then a third and it kind of, kind of gives you away. It kind of calls your bluff there. Right. Uh, so real quick here, these are some things that, that, uh, Ted Bundy was able to assist the green river task force with, uh, he had mentioned that the person would return to the dump site and that he would potentially spend time with the bodies. He's going to come back there to dump other bodies because he's do- using this cluster dump, uh, as Ted would call it. Mm-hmm. And later we would hear other serial killers call this as well as a cluster dump. Um, he had also suggested that the sex and violence is all one big thing for this guy. And this is really all this guy thinks about and fantasizes about. And so if you are desperate, then maybe you check out who's coming and going from triple X theaters or slasher films. Um, the other thing he would, he would talk about, and this is something that we talked about 
when we were discussing Ted Bundy in the last episode is he said, you know, you are looking for somebody that drives a lot, that is constantly in their vehicle. You're looking for somebody that, that might have to acquire new vehicles more often than one would be expected because he's putting so many miles and so much wear and tear on a vehicle. Mm-hmm. You're looking for somebody that might need to replace the tires very often in, in their vehicle uh, or has access to multiple vehicles. The other thing, and now this was something that the Green River Task Force already knew and they had already implemented in their investigation, was that Bundy said this is somebody that is very comfortable around sex workers, meaning that he was a John, that he was probably a John before he started killing, and at other times he might be a John and not pick up a woman and kill her. He, he, might, he might return her to where he picked her up from. Right. Uh, that sometimes he's killing and sometimes he's not, but he's somebody that they are, they're not afraid of seeing him on the strip and seeing him where he's picking up these young women, which is a statement that we knew to be true. Something that we knew would hold water because the task force, they believed, you know, once, once the, uh, TV started telling everybody the, the news and the mm-hmm. media and the newspapers started announcing that these sex workers are being picked up and they're being killed and they're being dumped in the river. And then in the woods, yeah. they really believed that the killings would stop. Why? Because at some point the, the working girls would quit getting into vehicles and they, yeah, but that's not going to happen. Well, you and I know that. And back then they didn't know that, that this was just something they expected because they thought, well, this is, this is as bad as it can get. And right, so what right. they did but was these they, workers are already living a super high risk life anyways. But the investigators even took it a step further where they went down to the strip and they were telling the other they were telling the workers what was going on. You know, this is the stuff we're seeing. We're looking for a very bad man. It could be two. You know, they at the beginning they didn't even rule out the possibility of there being two killers because the killings were happening happening so fast and so mm-hmm. often. And they thought, you know, once we once we inform the community as to what's going on, that this is going to slow the killer or it's going to scare the killer or it's going to scare the victims, the potential Mm -hmm. victims that would get in his vehicle. It becomes obvious to the investigators that after a while that while they're asking Ted Bundy to help them look for the Green River killer, they also start to figure out that sometimes Bundy's referring to himself. Mm-hmm. And w- what we mean by this is that, you know, it it's not Bundy saying, oh, you're looking for a five foot ten white guy and he lives in this neighborhood and he's married or he's divorced or whatever. He's not giving a specific profile of the person. He's mm-hmm. just saying, you know, judging by the victims, the number of victims and where the bodies are located, this is what I think this guy is doing. And he can only he can only surmise what this guy is doing by either guessing, you know, what the, what the killer's movements might be, or by going back in his own history and referring to things that he done or things that he would do in this situation. So at some point they realized that, that in some form he's talking about himself and that's how, you know, they, they really find out some more of the details about, you know, Bundy with the uh, necrophilia and uh, where he, you know, and why he left the areas that he left and and searching new areas and the way that he would find new victims. They're able to study a lot of Bundy's movements from Bundy's own words. And at some point, too, 
they they need to start having Bundy tell us where these other victims are of his. You know, where can we find some of these bodies? And he will start to tell the the investigators where to find them and tell as much as he can. Well, I think that's because he couldn't help himself. Yeah. Yeah, I you think know. it and you can see it pretty clearly, you know, when you watch some of these old interviews that he does enjoy talking about himself. He enjoys the FaceTime. He likes sitting down and he likes people hanging on his every word. Mm-hmm. Um, and at some point there's, you know, he's, he's got to, you know, speak about specific victims and mention their names and where they can be found and things that he did to them and how he abducted, abducted them. And that's why when you have these situations with these victims that were not found at the time or the victims that, uh, were unable, there are no eyewitnesses and they didn't escape. So they can't give us an account of what happened. This is why we know that, you know, he was using things like uh, pretending to have a broken arm, you know, uh, and things that he would do to his vehicle and ways of abducting these young women. So we have Ted Bundy trying to help this uh, law enforcement with the capture of the green river killer. He was not successful, but he gave him a bunch of information and some leads he also talks more about himself and his crimes, but we still have this thing looming over Ted Bundy. He's going to be sentenced to death by the state of Florida, but b- before doing so, he does a lengthy interview mm-hmm. um, with a lawyer, I believe. Or uh, uh, I believe uh, this was with James Dobson. Yeah, yeah, and so what What was interesting about this was it's about 20, 30-minute interview, maybe longer, but the what they actually tape the footage of it they released to all media outlets but there was a stipulation you had to show it in its entirety but we're going to play a little clip from that so you can hear uh, a little bit of this interview but also just uh ted bunny's demeanor and and kind of hear his own words yeah you know if i were able to ask you the questions that are being asked out there mm-hmm. uh, one of the most important as you come down to perhaps your final hours are you thinking about all those victims out there and their families well, who are so wounded, you know, years later, their lives have not returned to normal. They will never return to normal. Absolutely. Are, are you carrying that load, that weight? Is the remorse there? Again, I, I know that people will accuse me of being self-serving, but we're beyond that now. I mean, I'm just telling you how I feel. Through God's help, I have been able to come to the point where I've, much too late, but better late than never, feel the hurt and the pain that I am responsible for. Yes, absolutely. In the past few days, myself and a number of investigators have been talking about unsolved cases, murders that I was involved in, and it's hard to it's hard to talk about all these years later because it revives in me all those terrible feelings and those thoughts that I have steadfastly and, and, and diligently dealt with, and I think successfully, with the love of God. And yet it's reopened that and I felt the pain and I felt the horror again of all that. And I can only hope that those who I've harmed, those who I've caused so much grief, even if they don't believe my expression of sorrow and remorse, 
will believe what I'm saying now, that there is loose in their towns and their communities, people like me today, whose dangerous impulses are being fueled day in and day out by violence in the media in its various forms, particularly sexualized violence. And what scares me, and let's come into the present now, because what I'm talking about happened 30, 20, 30 years ago, that is, in my formative stages. And what scares and appalls me, Dr. Dobson, is when I see what's on cable TV, <laughs> some of the movies, I mean, some of the violence in the movies are, that come into homes today with stuff that they, that they wouldn't show in X-rated adult theaters 30 years ago. This stuff... The slasher is, movies that you're talking about. That stuff <clears throat> is, I'm telling you, from personal experience, the most, that is graphic violence on screen, particularly as it gets into the home yeah. to children who may be unattended or, or unaware that they may be a Ted Bundy who has that, that vulnerability to that, that predisposition to be influenced by that kind of behavior, by that kind of, of, of movie, that kind of violence. That was Ted Bundy's last interview with uh, James Dobson, and mm -hmm. it took place, as you heard James say, you know, in the final hours leading up to your death. That's because several of his uh, death sentences had been delayed because he was helping investigators and he was giving them information. At some point, he was no longer able to buy additional time. And he he was executed the next day. And one thing you should look up or, or look into if, if you want to dive further into this case, but there was with the date that he was killed. This was in January of 1989. You I have never seen, in my opinion, a time where more people were backing the death penalty than in this situation. It was, you know, it, it was like a nationwide almost celebration uh, that they were going to finally put this horrible man to death. Right. And it's actually been referred to as the Bundy barbecue because back then in, in Florida, I don't know what means of, of death sentence that they use nowadays, mm -hmm. but uh, back then they were probably, probably lethal injection. Yeah. They were using the electric chair back then. So mm -hmm. they referred to it as the Bundy barbecue, but there was a party going on outside of the prison. And you can look this up. There's, you know, people holding signs that were were celebrating the death of this horrible man, and it almost looked like a football tailgate uh, yeah. outside of the prison at that time. A, a big a big party of people getting together, drinking beer, cooking food, and and like rallying around together. Well, and it's kind of sad in a way because here's this guy that is even confessing to crimes on the way to the chair, and. And the reason why I think it's sad is, you know, maybe extend the time a little bit further and maybe get some closure for the other victims' families. Yeah, um, I, I can see your point of view with that, and, and I would agree with that most of the time. I But I do think that at times he was refusing information. Right, right. And he was, he was playing them at times. You know, we had said that, you know— he would say things like, well, I can help you find this body, but I'm going to need you to provide me with maps and, and some information on the case. And mm -hmm. these were things of him of, of him saying, you know, I can help you, but you're going to have to go away for a few days and come back with some information for me. And then let's see what I can give you. 
Um, so he wasn't always willing to just outright answer everything. Like we said, he confessed to the deaths of 11 women in the state of Washington and was only willing to give the names of eight of them. Um, and we have some curiosity to who some of those other victims could be. You know, there was a, 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 what's been referred to as his neighbor. Um, her name was Ann Burr. Uh, and, uh, she had lived with within a few miles of Bundy when he was 14 or 15 years old. And he's often been suspected of killing her. You know, yeah, she was the one that um, her piano instructor was actually his uncle. Was his uncle or, or his yes. uncle lived in the neighborhood? No, I believe she, she took piano lessons from the uncle. So there was this direct link. So he may, may have even met her or have slightly known her. Right. But basically somebody came into their home in the middle of the night. The parents were home. They mm-hmm. Someone came into the home in the middle of the night, slipped through a window. And when they woke up the next morning, they couldn't find their daughter, Anne. And I don't believe that her body has ever been located. She could be one of those three people that he was refusing to name yeah. in his confessions. I believe she was eight and he was possibly around the age of 15 or so. I yep. could be wrong. Yep. So... Uh, you know, check out the Bundy barbecue, uh, if you want to see those pictures, but let's, let's go back and let's talk about the green river killer. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, who was the green river killer? Well, this investigation, as much as Bundy tried to help them or, or was pretending to help them, uh, this investigation basically took about 20 years. You know, it was almost 20 years looking for the killer and it was about 20 years to, uh, put some of these cases to to bed because they were still looking for bodies mm-hmm. in the early 2000s. Now, in what took place was in the late summer of 2001, they started going back and testing a lot of the evidence that they found at some of these crime scenes and on some of the victims' bodies. Right, for DNA and stuff like that. Correct. And the first the first link that they find, they're using their testing sperm and they they determined that this man, Gary Ridgway, uh, he had left his DNA uh, inside and on some of these victims' bodies. Okay. Now, they were they were also able to collect other evidence at the crime scenes that they were able to link him to some of the bodies where he did not leave DNA. Now, what what's interesting here is that back in the early 80s, they are, these investigators, and we got to take our hats off to these guys and girls because they're out there collecting evidence that they don't even know if they're ever going to be able to use it for anything, but not only collecting it, but preserving it properly for, for decades. And it ends up coming back and it ends up finding the guy that they've been looking for, for so long. Mm -hmm. In 2001, Gary Ridgway, he confessed to killing 71 young women and girls. Now, as we said, most of these were sex workers. Some of them were thought to be runaways and other type of delinquents. However, he, he confesses to 71. He's only ended up convicted of 49. Now, they would spend the next approximately two years with the assistance of Gary Ridgway to locate some of these bodies. As we said, a lot of these bodies were not located at the time. Mm-hmm. And actually, still to this date, uh, last, you know, they haven't found all of these supposed 71 bodies. Um, is he just coming up with a number? Is he wrong? Um, he could be. He could be. He, he's actually said several statements where he has killed so many women that he cannot remember their names or where he found them or where, where he, he left, left them. them. Yeah. 
Um, so it's possible. I do believe that that personally, I believe that that number is going to be higher than 49. Now, last I heard local law enforcement, King County law enforcement, they are no longer looking for these bodies. As said, they spent about two years with his assistant assistance, locating a lot of these bodies. They are no longer doing that. Part of that comes down to, you know, it's the it's the economy of the whole thing. At some point, you don't have enough money to be spending that amount of resources and that amount of time looking for these bodies, which mm-hmm. is unfortunate for a lot of the victims' families and the victims themselves. But, you know, these these investigators and the King County Police Department, they have other cases on their desk today that they're looking into. Now there was, um, there is a gentleman, uh, he's retired, uh, I believe retired military investigator, and he has opened up his own, um, search team and they are working to find some of these other bodies. And they've actually been able to work with Gary Ridgeway himself. He has, he has tried to give them some clues and some tips as to where they might find these bodies and yeah, and it's not like he's sitting there holding the information hostage. He just doesn't remember a lot of the stuff. Right. Well, and actually, or that's what we can assume. Actually, I, mean, I came across a list that he provided to these uh, to these searchers and to this group uh, where he basically has listed as many names as he can recall and approximate dates that he believes that he abducted these women as well as, you know, did he leave them nude? Did he leave them with any clothing on? Um, I don't know his, I don't know the, his reasoning for wanting to help. Um, I, I don't think that he feels bad about any of this stuff. I don't think that he's found God, uh, and wants to become right with God or anything like that. I actually think that I think that it's a numbers game for him because in in a later statement, even though he has confessed to 71 killings, he did say, you know, when, when asked why he is helping in this search, he has said because he wants to prove that there are 80 victims out there. So now his number's gone up even higher. Mm-hmm. He's now saying 80. And I think for him that he wants to be, he is technically America's most prolific killer of all time. And I think he's, proud of right. his number and right. i think he wants that number to be as high as possible right and he's trying to prove it by doing you know it's like right now it's like oh well it's just, we're just speculating that this is the number he's like no no we, we can prove it now what were some things that that ted bundy got right about gary ridgeway uh well he was right gary was returning to the victims and he was spending time with the bodies um, now how Gary started off and we don't have, you know, we're, we're coming towards the end of our show here. Uh, but to give you a little background on the green river killer, you know, he started killing back in 1982. This was after his second marriage. He was divorced, uh, to, you know, the first time. And then after the second marriage, he was divorced again. He would later say that he believes that had he just killed his second wife, that he might not have killed any of these women. I don't That's, believe that for one no. for one minute. Um, it's 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 just a way for these guys to blame their actions on somebody else and on other things out of their control. Well, and just like you heard in the interview, I mean, like Bundy, you know, blames these murders on you know soft porn and stuff like that. That's not the reason why you're killing people. You don't watch. You know, I, I would just argue that you know how many people, millions and millions of people watch this. A soft, 
uh, softcore porn or something, they're not going to go out and start murdering people. And so Gary does the same thing. It's always coming up with these excuses. Mm-hmm. You know, I was well. If I would have just killed my second wife, then everything would have been fine. You you killed eighty women, mm-hmm. you idiot. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, oh well. If I would have just killed her, it'd be fine. Well, but Gary Gary was always that way, and he will always be that way. I mean, mm-hmm. when he was when he was young, when he was just out of high school. Now this is a guy. He he's not a brilliant guy. You know, Ted might be one of the smarter and more intellectual serial killers that we've had to deal with, but that wasn't the situation with Gary Ridgway. He w- he was good at what he was doing. He was good at eluding detectives and the investigation. But he's not a brilliant mind. I mean, he's got an IQ of about eighty to eighty-five, depending on uh, which source you check. But he graduated high school at the age of 20, and immediately after high school, he goes into the Navy. And now when he's off in the Navy, he starts uh, having sex with um, with Filipino sex workers when, when he's out in the Navy. Mm-hmm. Now, he, he contracts venereal disease because of this. And he we know this because we can see this in his Navy records. However, what how does he react to this? He, he blames it on the girls. You know, this is oh, it's their fault that he got this disease. And then in 1972, he comes home from the Navy to mm-hmm. find his wife and his wife is being unfaithful and had been unfaithful to him while he was in the Navy and they get a divorce and he blames the divorce on her. Well, guess what? Yeah, she might have been unfaithful, but you weren't being very faithful yourself. Right. Um, in the second uh, the second marriage that he has, the, he ends up having a son. Uh, he's not very happy about this situation. I don't know why, uh, but they eventually divorce in 1981. And again, this is the the woman that he said he should have killed rather than all of these other women. Uh, it, this is when he starts killing is in 1982, shortly after his divorce. And his his modus operandi back then is he would go pick up these girls off the strip. Now, mind you, he was just like Bundy had said in the task force uh, had expected, he was already frequenting sex workers before he started killing them. But once he starts killing them, what he would do is he would bring them back to his home and he would kill them in his home. And now he lived in a house that is much like most people's homes where you are surrounded by other houses and homes. And so there's no reason why, uh, you know, somebody shouldn't have seen this activity going on. But he would walk in the walk in his home. He didn't have a garage. He would walk in his home with with a woman that he picked up, and then he would kill her and bring her back to his vehicle and drive off. And he would dump them in the river. Now, as said, he started dumping them in the wooded areas nearby in these cluster dumps. Remember that period of time where the they thought that the killings might have stopped because they were no longer finding bodies. Right, well, and, and Bundy was saying, no, they haven't stopped yet. And Bundy was slightly right on a couple things. You know, he said he's either changed where he's dumping them or he's changed his victimology. Well, he did do both of those things in a sense. Uh, At one point, he did think that he would stop uh, picking up sex workers and killing them. He wanted to he did want to find runaways and delinquents. And but one thing that he definitely did was he stopped using these cluster dumps where he would take one of the victims out into a wooded area. And he was even driving further and further away 
as these killings continued and just leaving them, you know, independently, individually. So you think after two marriages, he would just stop, right? But doesn't he get married a third time? Yeah, he did get married a third time. And this is when he has to change and adapt once more. He stops killing in his home and now he's killing in his vehicle. And he's doing this either late at night when his wife is asleep or very early in the morning. He would get up and leave hours before he was supposed to go to work and go off and pick up a girl, kill her, dump her, and then go to work. Now, there were some strange things that happened with this case, but they're also similar to what we saw with the Ted murders in Ted Bundy's case, where anytime you have a large investigation that spans months and months and months that has this number of victims, this number of potential eyewitnesses, Remember how many suspects they believed that they had in the Ted killings? They they said like 3,500 suspects, and they were trying to narrow it down to the best 100 suspects. Well, very much like the Ted murders, they had the same situation in the Green River killings, where they had thousands of suspects, thousands of suspects. But usually in an investigation of this type, and just like in Ted Bundy's, they have usually spoke to or or have heard the name of the actual killer at some point in the investigation. Now they were led to Gary Ridgway on more than one occasion. Somebody had spotted his vehicle and they had spoke with him. Every time Gary Ridgway was able to kind of convince them that he was not in fact the green river killer. And actually just to show you how far gone this dude is, they actually at one point hooked him up to a lie detector test because at some point they're like, wait, we we've seen this guy's name before and now we're seeing it again. And there's got to be something here. But every time we talk to him, he leaves us convinced that he's not the guy. Mm-hmm. So let's hook him up to a, a polygraph and see what how that goes down. He passes a polygraph test because he feels no remorse, because he feels no guilt for these killings. He do, He's not ashamed on the inside of what he's done. He's not even nervous that you're going to catch him in a lie because to him, he's not done anything wrong. He does not see these women as people. And he doesn't have the same feelings and emotions that you and I have. And this is a reason why we we shouldn't put a lot of weight into polygraphs in the first place. Well, especially with people of this nature. Because again, he he doesn't feel and think the same way that you and I do. And and evidence of this is he actually had his 8-year-old son present with him on one of the killings. Mm. At some point, if you look look up his, his victim list and see when they disappeared, uh, you will see a frequency that is so disturbing. It w- I mean, it will freak you out. This guy was killing roughly about three women a month uh, during during his peak. Now, at one of those points, he had his son for the weekend, and he was coming back from his brother's birthday party, and he decides to pick up a, a woman on the way home while his son is in the vehicle. And he walks with the woman out into the woods. They're gone for a while. He comes back. She does not. And his son asks, where did the girl go? And he says, oh, she lives near here. And she decided to walk home. But he actually used his son as a ruse to to let these women's guard down. In that specific situation, he had the son with him. But he talks about, because remember, we said that the the sex workers would have had a heightened state of awareness. Now, keep in mind, these women probably have more street smarts than the police investigating the crimes to begin with, Mm -hmm. you know? So these are not people that are easily tricked. 
Now they're they're getting into vehicles and they understand that there's a maniac out there that's killing women. So they start doing things on the street to kind of watch each other's backs and to watch their own backs. Right. But he did things like where he would, you know, the, the he said that at some point the women started asking to see ID because they want to see, you know, are you a cop or, you know, show us your ID so we know that you're a regular dude. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he would show his ID and he would purposely take his finger and cover up his name when he would, but he would hold open his wallet so that you could see pictures of his son in the wallet. So it would let their guard down. And he all oh, right, right. Like he has a little boy and, and yeah, so, he's, so he's a family he's a, man. Right, he's, he's not, not going to hurt me. Right. Uh, and he would purposely leave some of his son's belongings in his vehicle as well. Now, another <sighs> that's thing, some, that's one messed up dude. Another thing that Ted was absolutely right on, and, and anybody that studied this stuff long enough, it doesn't take any you know Sherlock Holmes to figure this out, but Ted was right that Gary Ridgway was driving constantly, much like Ted was doing. You know, it, it, we've talked, you know, people always ask, what do these serial killers have in common? You know, is it is it they had a head injury, or was it that they wet the bed until they were 15, or that mm-hmm. they... Uh, I, I'm going to go with wet the bed. Or that they were strangling cats or setting things on fire when they were children. What are what's the identifier to figure out who these guys are to separate these monsters from the rest of society? Well, in my opinion, it's much like what we talked about in the last episode. Their number one killing tool and killing weapon, in my opinion, is their vehicle. If well, you, with these two gentlemen, with these two, but you will see this I time and call time them again. Gentlemen. No, these they're two not. Yeah, fuckheads. So, but you will see this time and time again with a lot of killers. They are people that prowl constantly. They're driving constantly. They will go Mm -hmm. to great distances to hide their crimes. These are people that are tearing through tires and tearing through vehicles at, at a large rate. Now, one thing that Gary did to help elude detection was he had multiple vehicles over the course of this investigation, but he also worked as a painter. He, he was a tape guy at the, at the uh, Kenworth factory. Now what Mm -hmm. was Kenworth? They would paint vehicles. So he was often able to change the color of his vehicle because he would just paint it a different color. Now, the strange thing here is we we had said that the investigators had spoken to Gary on more than one occasion. Now, his co-workers knew this because he was actually picked up at work one on one of these occasions. So his nickname at work now and you can you can look this up, but there's plenty of co-workers that said, you know, he was a weird dude. He wasn't the kind of guy. He wasn't scary, but he wasn't the kind of guy that you would go get a beer with after work. You mm-hmm. wouldn't invite him over to your party or to your family get together. So he's like Nick. <laughs> no, but they nicknamed him Green River Gary at work. That's what they kind of called Green River Gary. Green River Gary. They would kind of call him that behind his back. Why? Because because the, they, the police showed up to question him about the killings oh, right. so then they're at like, work. So they're and they're like, like oh, yeah. well, yeah, because from now on, anytime you're taking okay. a spoke break or you're at lunch break, the conversation is, well, is Gary really the killer or is he not? The, you know, <laughs> right, right. And everybody had a different opinion, but they all agreed they didn't want to hang out with him. Uh, yeah, now, and after that, why? <laughs> I wouldn't want to hang out with the dude either. But Gary is always the type of of person to get even too as well. Now, one thing he did, he would hear the coworkers snickering and calling him green river, Gary. And, and you know, but one thing that he did was he would often keep some of the women's jewelry, these women that he killed. Um, and one thing he did at work on at least one occasion was he would take the jewelry and he would place it somewhere. Like somebody had dropped it, uh-huh. you know, or somebody had lost it. 
and a coworker picked it up and would wear it. And he would have this thing in his mind every time that he would pass that coworker in the hall or walk by her. Like, if you only knew what I know, you know, right, right. you, you guys goof around and you call me these names, yet you're wearing a dead girl's jewelry around, you know, around the office. Some of that jewelry that he had would end up in his and his wife. They would have these uh, garage sales and they would sell some of the jewelry as well as shoes of, of some of the victims. In, a, in all, you know, as said, he ended up uh, confessing to 71 mm-hmm. and he's convicted of 49. Now, part of that, he, he is not on death row. You know, he's serving a life sentence. And part of that life sentence was that he would confess to these these murders and he would help assist with the finding of those bodies. So with the Green River Killer case, um, we still have a task force looking for these bodies, still working with Gary. Um, Gary has to work with him. That's his sentence. Well, and and well, hopefully more victims, they find more of the bodies and more evidence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, well, he, he did have to work with law enforcement. This is a separate uh, situation going on where this is a basically a company, you know, that uh, they don't work for the police department, but he is offering them some of some assistance. Yeah. Right. Um, okay. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's a it's an interesting case. Was Bundy right on on things? Yes, he was certainly right on a handful of things. Um, and then other things, you know, were were just guesses or he was talking about himself. Mm-hmm. You know, and sad with Ted Bundy's help that they couldn't catch Gary sooner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, and I've often wondered, had Ted Bundy been able to help them like right out of the right out of the gate there and they would have been able to catch Gary Ridgeway a lot sooner especially what you know when bendy bundy was still alive within the first couple of weeks that he was helping them mm-hmm. would they have kept him alive longer do you think and used him as some kind of investigative tool you know th- for these other big cases going on throughout the country I- i've wondered where that would have gone had that worked out differently and that's ted bundy yeah, well t- ted bundy <laughs> is one of the uh you know, he's one of the more interesting and more fascinating serial killers, monsters that we've had to deal with and one that we've learned about through tri- true crime and through his crimes. Uh, but one thing t- that makes him so interesting is, you know, his willingness at the end to discuss these crimes, his crimes uh-huh. and other people's crimes with law enforcement and with the media, that he is truly one that that is the best to study. Uh, how about some recommended reading before we wrap up season three here? We, don't worry. Don't worry. We'll be coming right back for season four pretty mm-hmm. quickly. Back in the garage we'll, next we'll week. We'll come as back usual. in like uh, six months. Yeah. Right? So we, we, <laughs> we're taking a six month break. We'll be back in six months. Don't worry about us. So we've recommended some pretty good Ted Bundy books so far. We had uh, um, The Bundy Murders uh, mm-hmm. by Kevin Sullivan. And last week we recommended I Survived Ted Bundy. Uh, this week, uh, one of my favorite, one of the arguably one of the best true crime authors of all time, somebody that knew Ted Bundy, of course, Anne Rule. We're talking about Anne Rule mm-hmm. and her book, The Stranger Beside Me. So if you want to check out any of our recommended books, if well, you want to pick that, one up. I'm actually writing a book with the same title, Stranger <laughs> Beside Me. If you want to pick up any of our recommended books, go to truecrimegarage.com, click on the recommended page, and we have a whole smattering of books there for Mm -hmm. you to check out. And you can just click on the Amazon banner and pick up your true crime books or anything else that you want to buy for the holiday season. Yeah, you can buy anything. Uh, I just bought a nice bass fiddle. Not a bass fiddle, bass guitar. 
slapping the base. And you can buy anything. Just go to truecrimegarage.com. Click on the Amazon banner. Buy all your gifts. And they give a little kick back to us with no charge to you. That's right. And we will see you back here in six months in the garage. <laughs> and until next time. It's two years and six months. Yeah. And until next time, be good, be kind, and don't let This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.